Welcome to Farmerama. As we hit the hungry gap, we know many of the farmers and growers out there are under more pressure than ever to provide food for your local communities and to rapidly find new markets for your produce, all whilst being concerned with the health of those around you. So we wanted to take a moment to say, as ever, we and so many others are grateful for the work you do. Sowing seeds, nurturing the soil, caring for animals, and managing the land so that everyone can eat. Thank you. Farmerama is made for you. This month, we bring you the final deep dive episode from a session at the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which took place in January. This year, we were delighted to be ROFC's official media partner. With life as we know it having ground to a halt, many of us are shell-shocked. Food, health, and the well-being of the people we love, work with, and live alongside have become our top priorities. It's as if we always knew deep down these are the most important things in life, but somehow this wasn't clear to us before. Maybe, just maybe, the economic system was pulling us in the wrong direction. The economy is a construct created to support society, so if it feels like it's not serving us, then maybe it's time to take another look. What form does our economy need to take if we want to support a regenerative farming future? We hear from a biologist philosopher and then an economist with their visions of what a new economy might look like. And we get some very practical on the ground accounts from food producers who are experimenting with regenerative economic models. The dominant economic paradigm of today is often described as neoliberalism. Firstly, we hear from biologist, author, and co-founder of ORFC, Colin Tudge. He helps us to define what this means and shares his vision for an economy that supports regenerative farming. The present economic model is that of neoliberalism. And the point about neoliberalism is not simply that it is capitalist, it is capitalist, but that's not the point. The point is that uh, neoliberalism is a specific form of capitalism based on the idea that A, you must at all costs maximise your profits, B, that you must do so in competition with everybody else, C, that competition somehow leads to efficiency, D, that you have this thing called the uh, hypothetical global free market which basically means that everyone should compete in a kind of no-rules, free-for-all, and somehow out of that melee is supposed to come a world that's tolerable to live in. Except, of course, that the real neoliberal doesn't have a conception of what a world that's good to live in actually looks like. The real neoliberalism simply says that whatever turns out as a result of this melee is reality. So, as they say, get used to it. And that is frankly insane. There's basically two models of farming out there in the modern world. And one that is prevails, which is the one that's kind of part of the neoliberal economy, says that, and this is a quote really, agriculture is just a business like any other. And in the neoliberal economy, all businesses are conceived as enterprises that are there to maximise profit, maximise wealth. 
So the neoliberal model of agriculture says that agriculture is there to maximise wealth. Whereas the second model says, no, actually the real point of farming is to provide everybody with good food and provide good jobs and look after the biosphere, duty of care. Ask the question then, what kind of farming do we really need? I came up with a concept about 12 years ago, something like that, of enlightened agriculture. Enlightened agriculture is based on two very big established principles, one of which is agroecology, which says you should treat farms as ecosystems, and the other is food sovereignty, which says that all societies should have control of their own food supply. Now, if you follow both those things through, you finish up by saying, look, we need farming that is very diverse, ecologically sound, etc., etc. We need low input. In other words, it shouldn't be this big oil-dependent thing. Low input actually, in the end, means be as organic as possible. If you've got those two things, it's going to be a, a very complex system. If you've got a very complex system, it's got to be skills-intensive, plenty of good farmers. doesn't mean plenty of slaves. It means plenty of skilled farmers. And if you put all those things together, you say there is no real advantage in scale-up, not if it's complicated and lots of people working together. So you really need the, the farms, the units, to be, on the whole, small to medium-sized. That model of, of, of a farm is the complete opposite of what we actually have, which is based on the sort of neoliberal model. Because what we have is, is, is farming that is trying to be as productive as possible, but at the same time as cheap as possible, given that oil prices are adjusted to make sure that it's affordable, etc., etc., etc. So you have a maximization of machinery, maximum use of um, industrial chemicals, because they're very profitable, and big machines don't do complexity, so you have a very simple system, and they like to be used on the large scale, that's the most economic. So you finish up with farms which are monocultural on the largest possible scale, very high input, a complete opposite of what you should be doing if you're really interested in keeping the world in good heart and providing everybody with good food, the complete opposite. So what kind of economy would deliver uh, enlightened agriculture, small mixed units, etc.? I think, and lots of other beginning people are beginning to think, or do think, that you really need what I'm calling a tripartite mixed economy, where you have private ownership, and you have some public ownership where it's appropriate, and you have community ownership. And whereas, well, community ownership exists, but it's not drawn attention to, more and more people are saying community ownership is the way forward. Community-owned farms, community-owned everything basically because the community is a wonderful compromise between personal gain and all that and it, it can work democratically so that's what we should be going for the tripartite mixed economy the second great principle is that every enterprise however it's owned should be conceived as a social enterprise in other words its agenda its purpose is not simply to maximize profit its agenda, its purpose is to, well, make the world a better place, which I would say contribute towards the convivial society, contribute towards the well-being of, of, of the biosphere. Then it's a social enterprise, that's good. When it comes to things that are privately owned, just investing in things because they're maximally profitable is not helpful. 
doesn't make for a good world. So what one should practice is what uh, a good friend of ours who's at this conference calls the, um, the positive investment. And positive investment is an extension of the original idea of uh, ethical investment. Ethical investment tends to mean that you don't invest in things you don't like, whereas positive investment means that you only invest in things that you definitely do like. And I think if everybody that had spare money invested only in things that they really think are good and had good reasons for thinking that they're good, then I think you're well on the way to creating a better world. There are critics of this kind of general view who say you're, you're, you're a communist. That, that criticism simply doesn't make sense. Private ownership definitely has a role. There are other people, who I know quite well, good Marxists, who hate the mixed economy for the totally opposite reason. You shouldn't have any private ownership in there at all. Well, this in both cases is treating the economy, which is merely a tool, means to an end, as if it were not simply an ideology, which it is, but as if it were some kind of fundamental moral principle, which it absolutely is not. The other kind of criticism that's aimed at kind of things I'm saying, and I've had it thrown at me hundreds of times over the years, is that what you're proposing is unrealistic. The bigger point is that the present course of action, the present way the world is run, is wrecking the entire world in all ways. You know, the biosphere, the climate, societies. It's the, it's the prime cause of all the unrest and misery. How can that be realistic? How can we prefer that? to a system that could deliver conviviality, could look after our fellow creatures. There's a lot of people, including a lot of small farmers, who are already demonstrating what can and should be done, I mean, all the, over the whole world. And what most of them need is, is not, a, not to do things differently, but a, a sympathetic society, people who will actually you know, appreciate what they do and buy what they do. If we seriously care about the world, which most of us do probably, we cannot afford to leave farming in the hands of the present, what you might call oligarchy. We cannot afford to leave it in the hands of present-day governments or of the corporates with whom they work very closely or of the financiers with whom they all work very closely. In other words, I think we have to take food and farming into our own hands. Tony Greenham is a finance professional, economist, sustainability consultant, and executive director at Southwest Mutual. He explains how, in his view, the economy has failed us, and what he thinks a more sustainable economy might look like. I'm Tony Greenham, and I'm the executive director of Southwest Mutual, who are aiming to set up the Southwest's first uh, regional mutual bank. The first part of my career was working in the City of London as an accountant and a banker, but I left that career after 10 years uh, during the dot-com bubble when it burst because I'd become completely disillusioned with the ethics and uh, the lack of any real uh, positive social purpose. And then I spent the next 10 years actually in business, uh, working on a sustainable businesses of various kinds. And then from there, I became an economist specialising in how we can change the system to become more sustainable. And this leads me to career number four, which is to try and set up a regional mutual bank that actually is a sustainable new economy bank. 
we've had a 40-year experiment of this highly market-based, deregulated, finance-driven economy. And it has led us towards an ecological collapse, huge levels of social inequality, um, and actually even economies that are not even in their own terms performing very well. So it is absolutely time to re-examine that system and to try something new. So I guess one of the biggest failings of neoliberalism, and one that's recognised, to be fair, by plenty of establishment figures and economists and politicians, is that it does really badly in understanding environmental and social impacts, whether positive or negative. It's really hard to get those priced into a market in a way that means that we fully account for all of the environmental and social impacts of, of the way the economy works. Neoliberalism has basically failed on that question. And uh, Professor Stern, Nicholas Stern, who ran a review uh, for the government in the UK, uh, described climate change as the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. But it's not just about climate, of course, it's about biodiversity, and we're in the sixth mass extinction, it's about the loss of habitats, it's about water, it's about soil, it's about everything, right? It's about our interaction with nature, and we've, we've, we've really messed it up disastrously. I think food and farming and anything to do with inter our interactions with nature are absolutely at the frontier of where neoliberalism has gone wrong. So I, th I think that farmers and growers and producers and people who are looking after habitats, um, they know this and they feel it and they understand how, how the system is absolutely getting in the way of them doing the right thing. Economics is not natural sciences. Economics is about humans and how we interact with each other. Nothing more, nothing less. And therefore, it's a social science. It is not a natural phenomenon. All markets are ultimately designed by society. You know, we set the rules. And so if we don't think we're getting good outcomes, then it is up to us and it's within our power to set new rules for those markets. And that's what we need to do. I think possibly some of the ingredients that we'd need to, to change this system uh, include having a plan, which is a national plan. And I don't mean central planning by that. I just mean an understanding that says, well, if we have to currently import so much of our fruit and veg, but actually we could grow that here, then what is a sort of planning you know, strategy? What is our land use strategy? What's, how do subsidies work? There needs to be a national plan that, that coordinates the food that we produce in total in relation to what people need to eat. Now, that's not my area of expertise, but I'm pleased to see at this conference that people are talking about that, and indeed the government is talking about it. I think another ingredient is the right kind of finance. Now, that, that is my area of expertise, and for this, the RSA Food and Farming Commission has been looking at whether we need a national agroecology development bank that is there to provide the right kinds of finance to allow people to change, to transform their farming methods. Because existing banks find that a little bit hard to finance. They're very good at financing what they know and carrying on as usual, but carrying on as usual is not an option. So we need the right kind of finance to be able to transform how we farm. The third ingredient, I guess, is know-how and, of course, uh, how to spread that. So increasingly, I hear uh, people who are growers, producers, farmers who who want to change but don't necessarily know how to set about it. Uh, so I think connecting people and giving them access to know-how is really important. And I think the fourth thing is the involvement of, of everyone, you know, citizens. Uh, I don't like the word consumer, 
but citizens, we all eat food, and that's one of the reasons why I, I love the growth of cooperative forms of ownership, of community-supported agriculture, other forms of community enterprise, because it's, it's a way of uh, the people who are ultimately consuming the food participate more actively with the people who are producing the food, and that's healthy for all sorts of reasons. So I think after many years uh, in big business and small business, I am a real believer in Schumacher's doctrine that, that small is beautiful. And actually, he didn't say small is beautiful originally. He said that it was important to have the appropriate scale. But the problem is in a world where everybody tends towards things being big, what we need is a counterweight, which is to champion small. Now, why is small business a great thing? And why do I think a smaller regional bank is a great thing? because it's that closeness to your customers and to the, the place as well, you know, the actual place where you're operating. Even in a country that is geographically quite small, like the UK, there's huge variety in the regions as you go around from, you know, what people like even, as well as the climatic conditions and what grows well and everything. So understanding local markets, being really closely embedded in communities makes it easier to do better business and better banking. So that's the regional part. The mutual part sort of goes alongside it. So if your customers are also your owners and they're the ones that control the business and that the bankers are basically accountable to them, then we believe that we can restore trust in banking, which has really been lost. But I think it's possible to put back the idea of local managers and decision-making that has diversity or inclusivity at its core, and I think that's the other reason why mutuality is a good check on that, and that it enables the business also to operate better because you've got uh, perfect food feedback then between you know understanding what your customers need, uh, you're closely connected to them because they are also the guys who run the business effectively, you work for them. So I always tend to try to look at um, what is good about a model that I might be rejecting. I guess starting a, a smaller scale uh, regional mutual bank begs the question, what does that mean that you don't need large corporate banks anymore? And actually, I'm not sure that it does. Uh, one thing I think it's important to note is that one of the ways that smaller scale businesses can be successful is to collaborate with each other in networks, because that way you can achieve some of the benefits of being big, some of the economies of scale, as an economist would call it, and that's one of the things we're aiming to do with Southwest Mutual because the plan is to have a whole network of regional banks across the UK that work together. And so where we can share costs and, and be more effective working together as businesses, we can do that. So in that way, you remove one of the needs, uh, one of the driving forces towards becoming really big as a corporation. There's a second part to that question, though, which is about the traditional shareholder-owned corporation, where the shareholders are sort of privileged as, as the preeminent stakeholder and their interests must be served above all others and their dominance in the economy at the moment is unhealthy and unnecessary. So I would hope for a gradual decline in the amount of our economic activity that's organised through giant unaccountable shareholder owned corporations and much more of our economic activity that's organised through you know, democratically controlled smaller scale cooperatives, community enterprises. Hopefully, many of you have listened to Serial, the six-part series we released at the end of last year that explores the current food and farming system by uncovering the myths about our bread, 
and stories from the pioneering New Grains movement. And we'll be releasing our first bonus short episode later this month. We wanted to share some of the final episode of Serial now to illustrate how everything Colin and Tony spoke about is embedded in our food systems, including in our bread. The principles of the economy are the principles of industrial bread. I think it's fair to say there's a general feeling that the industrial bread system is underpinned by a flawed logic, a logic that's damaging to people and planet. As we've heard, it's a logic of alienation. It relies on creating barriers between people in the system and between people and food. It's a logic of uniformity. It can't cope with diversity, let alone strive to promote it. It's a logic that implicitly assumes that automation is synonymous with progress and that bigger necessarily equals better. At every stage from soil to seed to flour to loaf, this logic is undermining the natural systems we depend on, our health, both physical and mental, the fabric of our communities and the value of people's work. In this series, we've heard about a new grains movement a movement with a different logic and a different set of aspirations. It aspires to diversity instead of uniformity, from the life in the soil to the life in our guts, from the genetics of our seeds to the backgrounds of the people baking our bread. Resilience, as opposed to infinite expansion. Collaboration rather than competition. Working on a human scale, not an industrial scale. And at every stage, getting people back into the system, into the mills, onto the farms, into the bakeries and around the tables, encouraging bakers and farmers and millers and breeders and consumers to talk to each other. This is about creating a more efficient bread system, a system that generates a lot less waste and takes responsibility for any waste it does create. A system that operates as more of a closed loop than a linear production line. A system that accounts for all of its impacts, including everything from people's wages and their job satisfaction, to the carbon footprint of distribution networks, to the health of our soils and the health of our bodies. We are the bread system. Even those of us who interact with it primarily as consumers. If you eat bread, you're part of it. But the current system tells us otherwise. It encourages us to be passive consumers and it encourages farmers and millers and bakers to be passive producers. So creating a better system is about moving from passivity to agency. In other words, it's about reclaiming food sovereignty. Two of the key characters in the series, baker and regenerative retailer Kimberly Bell and farmer Fred Price, have both been using their businesses to explore and demonstrate different ways of building an economy. An economy that's quite the opposite of the neoliberal one. Both are running regenerative businesses that produce food to nourish people. They bring joy. They promote healthy lifestyles and build communities. We asked them what shifting towards a regenerative business and regenerative economy means to them. Thinking back to the company that I used to run, which was essentially a shop fitting firm. We used to work for big retail clients like BP Oil, Starbucks, Hainsbury's. And we, um, we offered a service, we, it was a very high-octane kind of project management service where we would build these retail units in, very quickly. 
the client's attitude um, towards us is probably one of the the, mo- the things I think about when asked to define what it was like to run that business. And the sentiment was very much that it should be our privilege to work for these blue chip clients. It was very much about being awarded opportunity. We used to use language like winning work and really like that's just spin, I think, for describing a very inequitable economy um, where the power was very top down. We had very little self-worth, I think, as people, even though we could be proud of the work that we did. We were very good at it. It felt like the client was our boss, if you like, even though I was running a small business. I didn't feel like I was working for myself. Generally, the work that we were doing, although it was very creative to build these shops very quickly and lots of problem solving, it was it was actually, you know, it had no real value. We spent as much time ripping shops out as we did building them. It was very extractive and wasteful. It never felt like we were achieving anything for sort of the greater good or really providing anything that was going to benefit society at all in the long term. When I started Small Food six years ago, it was intended to be an experiment. I've been working for large food retailers and reading a lot about the big global food economy, the big industry, as it were, and I I just felt that everything about it was wrong intuitively. Perhaps I didn't really understand or wasn't able to articulate why. So I started Small Food Bakery as an experiment to see whether we could somehow illustrate very practically what the opposite might be. The sorts of things that we've explored quite successfully are hierarchies within the team, but also across wider society. So how can we work equitably with everybody, all the stakeholders required to deliver food to people, including the customers? And I think one of the things that defines the way we work now is it's human scale and we deal in relationships. It's person to person. So a lot of the the way we've designed the business is to make sure that those barriers that are commonly found in bigger businesses or let's call them the more prevalent business models of the day are removed. So we work from an open kitchen. We don't have sort of shop fitting counters and glass barriers. We're very open about letting people come in, spending time talking. Our customer relationships are often two-way. They become friends. We barter vegetables. They bring ingredients in. We turn them into something and often send them back. So there's a lot of reciprocity, I suppose, is an important word. I guess the other thing that's that's really worth mentioning is that our business doesn't entirely work on a monetary economy. There's a lot of other values at play. And I think particularly in light of what's been happening the last few weeks, which has been a very stressful time with the pandemic, I think it's really put us to the test. It's put our relationships to the test. And what small food has always been is really about investing in people. And if, you know, if you took an old traditional sort of business model, you look at building value on a balance sheet and it's always about fixed assets and cash in the bank and, you know, buildings and equity and those kinds of solid investments. But really for small food, it's about investing in people and it's about building knowledge and skills and relationships and I feel like that's where we've really been able to be quite dynamic in the last few weeks and perhaps keep trading at the same level or even slightly above where we were before even in the face of some very difficult conditions. It's all become really important these this issue in the last few weeks with the pandemic because 
the way that we work now really gives us a sense of value as bakers and it really has placed us within the community in a way that we understand our role and we don't feel like commodities that are expendable. We actually feel responsible. And I think that's one of the most significant changes that a new kind of economics, a smaller scale or human scale economics could bring, is a kind of reciprocal sense of both having a sense of value and self-worth, which is great for our own sort of morale and mental health, but also feeling responsible and taking responsibility and seeing how our actions can really directly influence the outcome of situations like the current pandemic for everyone. It needs to be acknowledged that we've all grown up and the only kind of economics we've known is the prevalent one. And that's really informed our sense of values. People judge businesses' success based on how big they can get, how successful they are, how many people you employ, maybe even what car the owner of the business drives. And these ways of measuring success are totally ingrained in us and in our culture and in our society. And we still get people ask us questions that kind of pitch us against those yardsticks and I find them really puzzling. The biggest barrier to this kind of economy being adopted is the fact that more people really need to believe in themselves and they need to get involved. They need to realise that the food system or changing the food system or changing our economic system is not something that's going to happen to them. It's only something that's going to happen if they actually do it. So I think building confidence in individuals and trying to illustrate that it is within our power to design the system within which we live is probably one of the most important things to focus on if we want to try to change the prevalent economic system. What we really need is lots of people working in the way that we are. We can't really scale up. If more of this type of business is adopted by more people, particularly in the food industry or in the food sector, I just think life will be more delicious. Um, I think there'll be a lot, a lot more joy and a lot more pleasure. And I think alongside that, and more importantly, potentially, is that we will see better and more equitable um, society where more people have access to good food and there isn't such a divide between what certain types of people eat. I think that just will be a great leveller and probably ripple out and influence all sorts of other aspects of life. Well, I suppose when I took on the farm a decade or so ago, we were just a, a small arable farm trying to keep up producing commodities, wheat, barley, all seed grapes. Um, we had no control over the price. And so my entire focus was on yield. And what came with that is a focus on a whole host of synthetic inputs to achieve it. I guess the problem was on farm, we were experiencing a kind of yield plateau year on year we're pushing crops harder just to stand still and so I guess the beginning of my journey started here a kind of interrogation of that yield plateau and the answer lay in in the fact that the soil health um, was way more complex than my agronomist or seed company would have me believe um, the inputs we were hooked on nitrogen insecticides fungicides um, they all had negative impacts on the kind of natural cycles and dynamics that really underpin soil health. Since then, I guess seven or eight years, um, I've just been exploring how far the farm can acknowledge and really enhance those natural cycles. It's been really eye-opening and, and frankly, pretty addictive. 
the thing is, this is only half the story, and, and it's the old commodity model that we were selling into with no way of rewarding or attaching value to these kind of new agroecological principles that was the real problem. So the new model is, is, is really based around relationships, I guess, authenticity um, and, a, and a huge amount of openness and collaboration. By engaging with bakers, millers, chefs, consumers directly, we've earned the right to start from the perspective, how do I want to farm and work backwards? Whereas before we were starting from a commodity framework and working forwards, i.e. ending up with a grow more strategy with all those negative inputs. I guess you'd describe it as a small food economy. It seems to encapsulate the idea that it's human scale and about food, not commodities. The general interest in and around the farm from customers and our little community on social media is really heartening. The thought that bakers can stand in a field of emma or wheat or chefs amongst a load of pigs that they're going to be handling at some point in the future and decide that they have an appetite for what we're growing is actually a really special feeling. Just at the moment, restaurants being shut has been a real shock to the system. I guess the challenge going forward is to adjust how we work to reach people more directly, but in a way that's got to be sustainable long term. We don't want just a knee-jerk reaction that wears me out doing deliveries and packing. I mean, I'm just a farmer. The other side of this coin, though, I guess, is right now in this crisis, it's really reinforced to me that people still do have a capacity to value food in ways that's not just price and quantity. I guess at the moment it feels a kind of negative feeling, but it does demonstrate that that kind of closer connection to food is possible and that actually huge fundamental shifts in our food system can happen and can happen quite quickly. I guess the whole principle of what we're doing is, is not to create a product or protect a kind of niche product, somehow corner the market in heritage grains or pastured pork. Far from it. First of all, our farm has a certain carrying capacity for stock, and the nature of our rotation means we're only growing cereals two years and five. The work we're doing exploring diversity in cereal production, specifically for low-input agricultural systems, actually has to be shared. That means seed, ideas, and support. Me having seed in the ground and, and establishing a network of bakers and millers here in the southwest is just the first step. And there are big logistical and legal barriers to enable the kind of work we're doing here to reach more people. But the whole point is to be as collaborative and open source as possible. Because when those buying your produce are your friends and the relationships that underpin the supply chain are all about shared values, it really enables you to be released from that kind of idea of competition and that kind of individualism and protectionism that is associated with the old model. And it's really liberating. The COVID-19 pandemic has made it clearer than ever just how vulnerable industrial food systems are. Actually, there's a very different type of efficiency and resilience in smaller food networks. They're much more nimble and able to adapt to the ever-evolving situation to ensure that their local communities are fed. These more direct, human-scale networks are what Colin, Tony, Kim and Fred were all talking about. I have no background in economics, and really my heart is in the soil. But as we have been bringing you the voices behind regenerative farming over the last five years, it's become clear that in order to build ecological farming futures, and to rejuvenate respect for farmers and rural communities, 
we need to look beyond the farming system itself. If we look at why most farmers are still doing chemical or conventional farming, it's in part due to debt traps and the need to meet the demands of the commodity market. It's all connected. Sometimes I find that thought overwhelming. But then I hear the stories of people already living a new reality, experimenting with different forms of business that better serve regenerative farming and humanity as a whole. And I'm filled with hope. Let's work together to build a new normal based on diversity, food sovereignty, care, collaboration, and of course, healthy soils. This episode of Farmerama was made by Abby Rose, Louis Hudson, and Hannah Sutherland, with me, Joe Barrett, and Katie Revel. We're extremely grateful to our Patreon supporters who help us make the show. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, please visit patreon.com and learn a bit more about it there. Community support is provided by Hannah Sutherland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett.